Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so we we have a kind of um, another look into uh, into the the human condition and uh, just what what we're tasked with uh, in terms of our our life in this world and and our journey and what it is that we have to accomplish and. Um, and it's 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 so essential to 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 have a, a vision, and 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 a game plan, and and of course that's that's what the the Torah gives us, and that's 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 what we're we're doing in this world. Um, uh, we have a concept of truth um, and and direction, and I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that uh, you you. you if you want to um, believe in God, or if you want to uh, believe that you believe in God, <laughs> there are th- certain things that go along with it beyond just a, a, a the idea that there's a, a, a an infinite power up there. Um, that that's sort of what we sort of like where our mind goes initially. We think that well, I believe in God because I believe that there's some sort of power up there. But but if that that's not really called in from the Jewish perspective, belief in God. If one wants to believe in God from the, from the Jewish perspective, one also has to believe a number of other things, including that God has a plan and that God has a plan for us. So that there is actually, um, there is actually a direction. This is the amazing thing about the word halacha. Halacha, which is um, infamously translated as Jewish law, it actually means the way. Or the path that there is a, it's there's almost like a, a Zen-like quality to it. That there's like a, a flow, there's a direction um, to how one gets from here to there, and 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 that there's an order to to this world. Um, counterintuitively, the the order is somewhat incomprehensible, <laughs> um, and we we actually play that out in in the, in, in a sort of uh, a very holy way, but in a, in, a, in, a, in sort of a sort of a in a, an absurdist, humorous way, uh, once a year with a with the Pesach Seder, because there's if you actually look at the order, Seder means order. If you actually look at the order of the Pesach Seder, it's all over the place. You know, you're taking, you're covering, you're uncovering, you're taking plates off the table and then putting them back on the table. You know, you're it's a big, huge feast. But you don't eat for hours. <laughs> it's there's all there's there, there's all sorts of like um, oddities to it, and yet it's 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 certified with this word called order, right? Which gives us an insight into the actual order of this world, which is there is an order, but it's it's very surprising and counterintuitive, and that. Just like at the Pesach Seder, there are certain things that we do just in order to evoke questions from the people at the table, especially the children at the table. We're all God's children. Certain things God does is in order to evoke questions from us and sometimes protests from us because we know that we've learned that sometimes God shows us certain things for us to say no to them. Levels of injustice. That God wants us to protest. 
poverty that God wants us to change. Right? So, so, so we, see, we see all these, these types of things. Now, now, the journey of the soul in this world, see, remember, there, a lot of times we, we tend to think of us as sort of like, here's this world, and here I am, and then after 120, the, the life of the soul continues, and then it goes on and on and on and on. And that's, that's one perspective, and it's not, it's not incorrect. But it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a broader, deeper perspective than that, which is that before I was ever born, I was part of an infinite realm. So that there's an infinity before this world. And that this world is actually a tiny bridge leading to another infinity. And they call that the Gesher Chaim, right? This is the, this is a, there's a famous book that, that brings this, this idea across. So in other words, this world is actually this little tiny bridge sandwiched between two infinities. And that's, that's actually a much truer and, and greater perspective of, of what our lives are. So, so you see a lot of this um, mirrored in, 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 in this week's Parsha that we just read in Chayesar. And the whole, the whole um, event of Abraham Avinu coming to buy uh, Mora Samach Pela, which is the, the cave of the patriarchs. And the Zohar says that, that, that this cave contained within it the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And that the, the, the Zohar says that this is where heaven and earth kissed, inside, inside this cave. Not only that, but the Medrash says that, that Ephron, when he showed Avraham Avinu this cave, when, that's not when Avraham Avinu saw it the first time, but Ephron saw only darkness, mm. and Avraham Avinu saw a blinding light. Mm. So, so this, is, this is another perspective, because we know that it was a blinding light. And yet, here the, the owner himself saw only darkness. So, so we live in a society where, for political and sociological reasons, um, in an effort to maintain peace and, and tranquility among people, which are all extremely valuable and, and, and very, very worthy goals, we have um, surrendered a concept of, of truth because in order to all get along, we've made a, a very um, dramatic adjustment, which is to say, everybody is right. And, and in order to maintain peace, we've, we've surrendered a concept. Is there an ultimate concept of truth? And... And the great, the great trick, if you will, is to be able to maintain this ultimate vision, this ultimate concept of truth, while at the same time being loving and accepting of each other and caring for each other. And that there shouldn't be a, um, a contradiction between the two. And of course, from the Torah perspective, there isn't a contradiction. 
we know that every that God looked into the Torah and created the world, and that we're all God's children, and therefore all of us have to have a share in the Torah. And that's in fact the case because Jews and non-Jews, everyone in the entire world, has a share in the Torah. You have the you have the mitzvahs that Jews are obligated to, and then you also have. Um, the mitzvahs that, that non-Jews are obligated to as well. The Shebar mitzvahs b'nei noach, the seven mitzvahs, universalistic mitzvahs. So everyone has a share in the Torah. Everyone has a share in the Torah. And we're all partners in terms of realizing the completion of creation. Okay. So, so if, you, if you ask yourself, is, is there really this concept of ultimate truth? The it's a very big question, but I would just, just as a first step, um, just ask you to consider the structure of the universe itself. The fact that everywhere you look, there is structure. From, from, from the trillions of heavenly bodies, which have the most exact orbits, all the way down to air, right, which is a very precise formula, between oxygen and all sorts of other things. And, you know, ever since I heard this, I, I'm just still amazed by it. I heard, I, I, you'd have to look it up whether it's true or not, but just the fact that anyone's saying it is, is, is fantastic enough. That if there was just a little bit more oxygen in the world, if you lit a match, basically the whole world would catch on fire. Right? And if there was a little less oxygen, everyone would suffocate within like moments. Right? They say that in terms of the the ordering of the planets themselves, that if the sun were just a little closer to the earth, we'd all basically melt. And if it was a little bit further, we'd all freeze. I mean, it's, it's exquisite, the, 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 chore the choreography of the heavens, right? And then you come down to the exact components of, of, of what we breathe. When you look at the, the body, inside the body, the, the exact... Um, arrangement of X chromosomes and Y chromosomes and, 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 and DNA and everything like that, that if you, you know, if you have a, a little bit more X or a little bit more Y, you have like nine heads or, you know, 20 feet or whatever it is, right? It's exact, 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 exact. Then you take it down to the subatomic level, right? Which is just, I mean, all you have is structure. All there is is structure. Now, would you say that there is no ultimate concept of truth? That, that this doesn't apply to the moral order as well? That, that, that the God who created this world with the ultimate structure doesn't care whether you bow down before a rock or whether you look up to God and say God is one? Right? I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that God has an abundance of opinions. <laughs> you know? God says, okay, that's blue and that's green, that's red and that's purple. And you know what? If you say, okay, so look, let's say a red light, you know, for me, red is green. So like, that's my thing. So I drive during red lights and I stop during green lights. Because this is America. And, you know, it's about really what I feel in my heart. 
And I feel like red is the color of passion. That's when I should go. You know, green is about growth. I should think and meditate. You know, stop a little. Right? It's like, no. <laughs> no, there's like, there's, there's, there's an overlap, you know? So, so where, 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 where there's an actual direction. And to think that, 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 that how we conduct our lives, remember, this, this whole world essentially is just a setting for us to exercise free choice in. So to think that God created the most elaborate movie set, right? Like, ever. For us to be able to exercise our free choice and then to say God doesn't care at all how we exercise our free choice seems to be um, seems to be short-sighted. Or God doesn't care how we exercise our free choice as long as we're sincere. So I think it would be very disrespectful to say that the people who threw their babies into fire in order to sanctify their God weren't sincere. I think they were, bless you, I think that they were incredibly sincere. I mean, I think that they had a great love for their children. I mean, this is a newborn baby, right? That's a big deal. And to take it and put it into flames and to cook it for their statue, I think that that shows a tremendous level of sincerity. Right? They weren't wicked people. I mean, the practice itself is wicked. And it's been, thank God, uprooted. But it was very widespread. Right? Because the whole idea was you, you needed to do something very great for your God. So what would be greater than that? That is the ultimate sign of, of love and devotion for your God, to do something like that. So that's been, thank God, uprooted from human society. But that was a staple of human society. So, so then you say, well, wait a second. I think that whatever you do that's sincere is right. Well, that was sincere. So, so maybe the correlation which... That you say 100% a correlation between that which is sincere automatically makes it right. Maybe, maybe that's a bit of a flawed connection. Maybe you can be sincerely wrong. <laughs> I think you're, can I tell you something? I love you so much I can tell you this. You are so sincerely wrong. <laughs> you mean the absolute best, but you, you haven't got it right. I, I, to me, I think that there's that that makes sense. You know, I I, I I'm guilty of this too. So I, I mean, I, I found out about this from my by being wrong on this. You know, and and uh, the person who told me said it in the nicest way. You know, but I was sitting at the table and I was espousing some opinion. I don't even remember what it was, and I I I, I said. You know, then there was someone who, who was there uh, who was, you know, watching me. And, 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 uh, and I said afterwards, I said, I'm sorry, but I, I feel very strongly about this. As though feeling strongly about something makes you right. <laughs> I realized afterwards I was completely wrong. And that feeling strongly about something, 
there is not a 100% correlation between feeling strongly about something and being right either. You know? So you can feel very strongly about something, you can be very sincere about it, and be 100% wrong. So, so there is a path, and there is a truth, and there is a way to that truth without disrespecting other people. It can be done because the, the universe has been ordered in this way by God himself. So now let's get back to Moras HaMachpelah, to the cave of the patriarchs. So you'll see, you'll see a lot of these things um, hopefully come together. So, so here comes Abraham. And Abraham has a test. This is one of his ten tests. You ready for this? Listen to this test. God gives Abraham the whole land of Israel. And, and if you look at the borders that are described in the Torah beyond the land of Israel, it's actually quite a larger piece of land than just what we call Israel today. Okay? And, um, and now Abraham wants to come and he wants to bury Sarah. Okay? And uh, he wants this cave. And it's a, it's, a, it's a good spot because this cave is um, where Adam and Eve are buried. Right? Adam and Chava are buried here. So this is like the, this is it. This is the porthole to the Garden of Eden. And, um, and it belo- God gave it to him. God gave it to us. It's the land of Israel. But you know, the people who lived there at the time they don't know that. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, it's theirs. <laughs> so here's the test. What is Abraham going to do? Is he just going to say, is he, is he going to kill the guy? He doesn't kill the guy. He doesn't do that. That certainly, you know, in many cultures would be the first place to go, right? It's bringing some men. It's ours anyway. We'll kill them all and we'll take what's ours. Abraham does not do that. And remember, Abraham just won the first world war. Right? The four kings against the five kings. Abraham is the general that won the first world war. So it's not like he was a stranger to military conquest. So so it's not like you say, well, Abraham was the master of chesed, of kindness, of hospitality. He's not even going to... That wasn't in his... His, his personality makeup to do such a thing. He won the First World War. Okay? So let's have in mind who this person was. So, of course it occurs to you. That's mine anyway. You're on what is mine, and I want it right now for my wife, who's like the holiest woman in the world, maybe ever, who's coming to fix the chet of Chava, right? I mean, she's like rectifying like everything in the world. She's like the ultimate. And remember, Hashem says to Abraham, listen to your wife Sarah, which means on some level Sarah's prophecy was higher than Abraham's. So Abraham has a very strong motivation for wanting to do right by his deceased wife. And now here's this person, Ephron, who's like, you know, who the Torah brings as like the ultimate uh, big talker, right? Because he starts off, it says in the Torah, it says in Pirkei Avos, 
Say little, do much. Right? And there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that. And I'll just maybe just take one moment just to give you one level of that. I know this from, as a, speaking as someone who, um, you know, is involved in, 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 in a creative field. A lot of times when you speak about a project or whatever it is, and this is outside of creative fields as well, the, the fire, so to speak, leaves through your mouth, meaning to say that you, um, you, 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 you quench your, your, your motivation by speaking about it. You, you allow the heat to, to, to leave you. And then also it's even worse if the person who you're just telling it to likes the idea. And I'll tell you why. Because then they congratulate you on a great idea and you feel like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> right? I already, I already received the, 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 the praise for having thought of this and I was validated that it was in fact a good idea. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know, you don't, you don't have that drive anymore. If you keep it inside you, say little, do much you'll see that that desire will fuel you. Okay. So Ephron starts by saying, he's, the, he's given as the classic example of the opposite of this idea. Because he starts off by saying, you are like a prince among us, whatever you like, take. It's yours. And then he ends by taking a king's ransom of money from, from Abraham. And... Um, the Medrash Rabbah brings something very interesting. If you take the word Ephron, after he takes the 400 shekels, which is considered to be, I don't know the exact amount, but millions and millions of dollars, okay? In, in today's uh, currency, it may be even more than that. I don't know the exact number, but it was, it's a giant, huge, huge sum of money, right? And remember, okay, let's, one thing at a time. So just, the Medrash Rabbah says that if you look in the Torah after Ephron, who remember at first is like, just take it, it's yours, right? Charges him this sum of money. The Torah spells his name differently. The Torah spells his name now without a vav. It's interesting. That alone is worth darshaning. I'm not, this is not the Midrash Rabbah right now. This is me talking. The letter vav is a connection, meaning to say he lost a degree of connection to the divine, if you will, afterwards, Ephron. But anyway, that aside, his name is spelled without a vav. The gematria of his name without a vav. Remember, he charged 400 shekels, right? The gematria of his name without a vav, which is how his name is spelled after he charges that sum of money, is now 400. And the, the Medrashaba then continues to say that that's the gematria of Ayin Ra, of a bad eye. So, so it looks like he is, um, you know, that he's expanded his capital, that he's become greater after this transaction, but you see how he's become literally diminished by this transaction. So, so a lot of times our eyes, you know, we have to know how to look at things. You know, like Rip Shlomo would say all the time, how are you looking, what kind of eyes are you looking at the world with? You know, and he talked about the, the concept of Shabbos eyes, right? Are you looking at the world with Shabbos eyes, you know? So that's, that's a whole thing in itself. But, but let's get back to this, um, this idea of Abraham buying the cave now, okay? So, so very, very interestingly, 
the most authorities, will, when they count the ten tests of Abraham, because we know Abraham had ten tests, will, will tell you that the tenth test was the binding of Yitzchak. Right? That's the, the Akeda. That's what it was. And most, most agree with this. And if you think that the tests are getting harder and harder, what, what could be harder, really, than taking this, this miracle baby, right, who at this point was, you know, by most accounts, he was in his 30s at this point. You know, we have this idea that he was like a young child. You know, is the, this is a testimony to the greatness of Yitzchak, of, of who Isaac was, that he actually understood at a certain moment what was going on or what was about to go on, and that he was a willing participant in it and actually asked Abraham to tie him really tightly so that he shouldn't get scared at the last moment and that the sacrifice should somehow you know, create a, a, what's called a mum, like a, a, um, an imperfection, so that he shouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. So it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, Yitzchak was a, a very active participant in this. And I've shared with you the, the Balaturim on this said that the name Yitzchak itself points to, points to this, this test and his, his participation in his, the greatness of this. That Yitzchak is spelled Yud Sadi Ches Kuf. That the Yud stands for, Yud is the number 10, because the Akeda, the binding of Yitzchak, was the 10th test. Then Sadi is the second letter, because that's 90, because Sarah was 90 years old when he was born. Then there's Ches, which is the number eight. He was the first person ever circumcised on the eighth day. And the last letter is Kuf, 100. That was the age of Abraham when he was born. So you have a whole picture of his life from the letters of his name. Now, now one more point, because I'm going to tell you something completely different in a moment, is that We have to appreciate the moment just that Yitzchak is the first Jewish baby that's ever born. And he's born through completely miraculous circumstances. Which tells us that the entire Jewish people are completely based on a miracle. That our existence itself is completely miraculous. Right? Because it's all coming from this baby that how could he have ever been born to begin with? And we're descendants of him. And we're going to develop that idea in a moment. Okay? Because, because Abraham Avinu describes himself at the beginning of his purchasing of Mor Samachpelah, the cave of the patriarchs, as a resident and as an alien. <laughs> and the, according to Hasidus, this is talking about the essential components of us in this world, what it means to be a Jew in this world. Because on the one hand, we're residents. What does that mean that we're residents? That means that um, we have a physical body and that we're, 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 we're part of this realm, this dimension called Olamasiya which is this, this dimension that we live in, which is the world of action. We have a physicality. So we're residents in that, in, in, that, in that way. On the other hand, 
we have a soul which is from the Kisei covet, from the throne of glory, which is dimensions higher than this world. So on the other hand, we're complete aliens to this environment. And so we have this weird schizophrenic existence in this world, where on the one hand, we're residents, and on the other hand, we're total aliens. And I heard Rabbi Manus Friedman say something interesting. He said, you know, when anti-Semites look at Jews and say, you don't belong here, that they're actually sensing something very deep, which is that on some level, we don't belong here. Because on some level, we are aliens to this realm. Right? They're not coming from that place when they say that, by the way. <laughs> no, that's, that's not their kavana, so to speak. But, but nonetheless, there is, there is something about, you know, our, our, our dislocated status. There is something to that that's, 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 that's part of our essential makeup. So, so now, now let's go deeper. So according to Rabbeinu Yonah, who's a Rishon, he says that, you know what the 10th test of Abraham was? It wasn't the binding of Yitzchak, right? The 10th test of Abraham was actually the purchasing of the cave Mar Samachpila. Right? Because how do you go about acquiring that which is already yours? And, um, you know, I was just joking with the Hebrew yesterday that my dad, I used to go, sometimes my, my dad was, was, a, was a, 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 among other things, he was a, a, a professor and he would wear, you know, like silk bow ties and tweed jackets and, you know, really look the part. And, um, you know, like we'd walk into a supermarket together and he would walk up to the workers there and he would say, take the rest of the day off. You know, <laughs> like, like who, is, who, who is he? Like, just to walk up to people and give them the day off, you know? But it was, you know, it was his way of joking with them. But, you know... So, you know, so I'm reminded of that in terms of Abraham, like being tested with this cave. On the one hand, it's like, from his perspective, it's, well, not just his perspective, from God's perspective, it's his. From the people's perspective, it's theirs. So who is he to, how do you, how do you deal with that situation? So, so in the greatness of the mind of Abraham, he comes to purchase it. He comes to purchase it. And you know, there are, there are authorities who actually criticize him for purchasing it. Because they say that by purchasing it, you undermined the legitimacy of God having given it to us. From Abraham's perspective, he was coming from a very shalomdic place, from a place of peace, because he wanted to acquire it in a way that A, it would never be disputed. No one could ever say, you took what was ours, because it was purchased with the consent and in front of the entire community. And on the other hand, they wouldn't think that somehow he strong-armed them. So there wouldn't be any resentment. In fact, he overpays for it in the eyes of everyone. So there shouldn't even be a, a taina, a, a complaint that... 
you know, really he cheated us. Even though he paid for it, he got a better deal. Like that, that, that thought couldn't even go up in their mind. So again, you see the, the, the greatness of Abraham in terms of how is he going to deal with this type of situation? Okay, so now let's go further. So, so the soul comes down into this world. And Abraham says, I'm a resident and an alien, right? I'm a soul in this world. And what is our journey? All of us, you and me together, right? We're going back to the next world. So what's Abraham Avinu here doing? He's now going back and reclaiming the porthole back to heaven. Right? We come down into this world and then we go up to the next. Now let's double back and we'll put these two thoughts together. You see, how could it be that the tenth test, according to Rabbeinu Yonah, so Rishon again, you know, one of the great Torah commentaries, how could it be that he says that purchasing the cave of Machpelah is the tenth test? Because that means that it has to be greater than the Akedis Yitzchak, the binding of Yitzchak. How, 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 how do you wrap your mind around that thought? How could, how could a real estate transaction ever be greater than what's just happened? So, so here's the explanation that I heard from my friend that I think is brilliant and really gets very much to the heart of the Jewish perspective and our lives in this world. Which is... At the Akedah, the Akedah was the ultimate, ultimate test and the ultimate transcendence in terms of a human being leaving all, any, any, any sort of limitations in order to connect to God. Right? But now, after you do that, you have to come back down into this world and deal with an annoying, an annoying person. Right? In other words, the goal is not just to leave and to transcend and to check out. The goal is then to take that level of light and inspiration and bring it back down into this world and to be able to deal with a person who offers you what you want for free and then by the end is taking gouging your bank account. (laughs) How do you do that? How do you do that? Because that's what we're tasked with. So Abraham leaves this world, so to speak, and Yitzchak like leaves this world. They say that, you know, there's a medrash that he went up to the Gan Eden and stayed there for a while. And then he came back down into this world and said the bracha over himself, Praised are you, God, who resurrects the dead. That Yitzchak said that bracha on himself after the Akedah. And in fact, the first three brachas of Shemona Esrei go according to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The first one we end with Magen Avraham, that's Avraham. And the second one is about the resurrection of the dead. That's by Yitzchak. This is going on the on the Akedah. So, 
So now Avram has to come back down into this world and to deal with someone who's like the essence of aggravating. Right? Toward what end? To be able to transcend again because through that, that's the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. So God brings us down into this world, makes us resident aliens, right? Clothes our souls in a body. Then we have to transcend the limitations of our body and put ourselves in terms of harmony with the entire universe. And so then we're, we're back here, we're okay with that. Then we have to go up again. <laughs> So this is, this is the path of the soul in this world. This is, um, you know, and I'll give you another, another uh, way of thinking about this. You see, you see, one of the kind of, um, uh, I'll use this word, amateurish ways of thinking about religion or Torah, if you will, is to think that, you know something, I'm going to just believe and this will be, you know, the greatness of my approach. I'll just believe and I'll say, God, you're so great. You run the world. You do it. Right? That's a good first step. Then God says, okay, great. I'm so glad you acknowledged me. Fantastic. You're on the right track. You're doing great. Now you do it. (laughs) And God just hands the ball right back to us. And then we're supposed to do our action and then say, God, you know something? I did my hishtadlis, I did my effort. But you know what? All I can do is effort. All results are for you. Right? So then we hand it back to God. And God says, you're so right. All you can do is effort in this world. All results are about me. Then he hands the back the ball to us and says, now you do it. <laughs> then we have to put in more effort. And then we also have to put in more. And the more effort that we put into it, the more we begin to believe that we're in charge of the entire thing. So this, this handing off from top to bottom, bottom to top, top to bottom, bottom to top, which is an endless process that goes from the moment we're born to the moment that we leave this world, by the way. See, what happens is, is that you forget to hand off the ball at a certain point. You go, you know what? I'm actually running the show. Yeah, I'm still davening and saying you're running the show, but you know, deep down, I'm running the show. And you forget to hand the ball back to God, right? Or God is handing the ball to you, right? And you're holding the ball and you don't even know you're holding the ball because you're too busy being religious thinking God is holding the ball. (laughs) And this is a big test. This is a big test because it's sort of like a lot of people enter into the religious frame of mind, but there's a little crumb, there's a little crumb of imperfection, a little crumb of the eight Sahara, which tells the person, now I don't have to do anything anymore. Now I'm absolved of responsibility because I believe. Right? But this is not Torah. (laughs) This is not Torah. So, so Abraham Avinu, Abraham Avinu paves the way, and uh, and and he makes it back. And this is the tenth test. 
he makes it back into the Garden of Eden. And what happens when he walks into what happens when he walks into the cave to bury Sarah? So the Midrash says something like out of like a almost like out of a horror film, if you will, the Havdu. As he's going in to bury um, to bury Sarah, Adam and Chava come out of their graves. And Chava says to, to them, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. And Avram and Sarah say back to her, right? Or Avram says back to her, don't worry, we're here to fix it. We're going to fix it. So, so you see that, that Avram and Sarah, that this whole mission that we're on right now is to, is to rectify like from, from, the, from, from the very beginning. So it's, it's intense. It's really intense. Um, so how did Avraham find the cave to begin with? Right? So the Medrash says that when the three angels came to announce, remember, they, they had three missions. One was to heal Avraham. Um, that was Rafael, right? It has the name Rafua in it, right? He was going to heal Avraham from the pain of his uh, circumcision, right? Which he did himself at the age of 99. So that's, that was one angel's job. The second angel's job was to deliver the good news. That was Mechon. Like our, the name Michael today comes from the name of this angel who delivered the good news that, um, that Sarah's going to have a baby in a year. And then the third, Gabriel, G- Gabe, Gabriel, you know, comes to announce what's going to happen in Sodom, right? That, that the city is going to be destroyed. And, um, and Abraham wants to give them, doesn't know that they're angels. They, they, they've come before him as idol-worshipping Arabs. <laughs> so what was the extent of the, the greatness of, of Abraham, right? Is that, you know, he was totally accepting and, 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 and loving of everyone. Here are idol-worshipping Arabs coming to him. And he's coming, he's, he's running in the pain the third day, which is the, the height of the pain of his recovery. And it said, God unsheathed the sun. Meaning to say that God made it so burning hot that day so that Abraham would have some rest and there would be no visitors coming for him to give hospitality to. But he saw that Abraham is sitting by the entrance of his tent and that Abraham is more upset over the fact that he can't do the mitzvah of hospitality than he is over the fact of his own pain. So God has Rachmanus, God has mercy on Abraham and he goes, He's so upset, I was trying to save him some trouble. Here I am upsetting him even more. He wants to do the mitzvah. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll send these angels in the form of men so that he can do the mitzvah of hospitality. So, so, so it's, it's actually an interesting little thing here that God was going to send the angels anyway. But because Abraham was so upset, he sent them in the form of men so that Abraham could do the mitzvah of hospitality. So, so there's a little, you know... Anyway, so, so, so Abraham wants to um, give them some uh, meat. So he's going to go and shecht a, a calf. He's going to kosher slaughter a, a, a calf. And the calf runs away. 
and he runs after the calf, and the calf runs into Morris Hamach Pelah. <laughs> and then Avraham sees this tremendous light, and he discovers the entrance into the Garden of Eden. So interestingly, doing the mitzvah of hospitality was the entrance point for him to discover the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So, so that's, that's, uh, and they say, they say that, that, that this mitzvah is how Avraham Avinu actually spread the oneness of the Word of God. Meaning to say that he wasn't giving lectures so much, you know, but that he'd bring someone into his home, he'd give them some food, and then he'd just say, thank God, right? Just thank God for the, the meal. Actually, I think it says that first he'd give them a bill for the food. And then he'd say, you can pay it or you can just say thank you to God. <laughs> Guess what? Everyone chose. Which option? <laughs> Go. Thank you, God. And, you know, that's, it made it real for people. It made it real for people. And it literally changed the entire world. It literally changed the entire world. So, so, I want to add one more point and we'll, we'll start to wrap it up, which is, which is that just talking about the relationship between Avraham and, and Yitzchak for, for a moment and Avraham and Sarah, I don't know when he gave them the, the 400 shekels whether he gave it to him from his own personal currency or not. But we do know that Abraham Avinu had a personal currency, meaning to say that there were different types of coinage at that, day, at that time, and different communities had different types of currency. And Abraham's was known as the best and most reliable of all the currency. You know, and in fact, you have, one of the Torah mitzvahs is that you have to have honest weights and measures. So everyone, because they knew the integrity of, of, of Avraham, they, they trusted his currency the most. And in fact, not only, there's a very interesting mitzvah in the Torah, not only do you, is there a mitzvah that you have to have honest weights and measures, but let's say, for instance, for whatever reason you have dishonest weights and measures in your house. Like, for instance, like why would you have dishonest weights and measures? Well, maybe... You started off as a cheat, and then you did tshuva, right? And you got honest weights. Maybe that's one, one way you could have them. Or perhaps they got eroded over time, and so now they were no longer current. So now you replace them with some current ones. Whatever it is, however it is that you would have um, inaccurate weights and measures in your house, however you came to have them, um, or maybe you thought you were buying accurate ones, and then it turns out they were tested and they were inaccurate. However you come to have inaccurate weights and measures in your house, you're not allowed to have them in your house. You're not allowed to even possess them or own them. In other words, it's not just you're not allowed to use them. You're not allowed to even have them in your house. Because you know why? You'll come to use them. 
you'll come to use them. So it's uh, very interesting, you know, if you just extend, just if you think a little more deeply about that. Like, you know something, I have this standard for this activity in my life, and I have that standard, right? Like double standards and all sorts of inaccuracies and things like that. Like try to, try to be like a simple person, you know? And by the way, you know, they say simple is hard. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. It's like you can, you can tell who's done real work on themselves and who hasn't done real work on themselves by how they view what it means to be what they call a, a pashat yid, a simple Jew. Because anyone knows that if you want to be a simple Jew, that's pretty much a lifetime's bit of work, you know? <laughs> and and, the, and the, the world itself so prizes sophistication. And, and the reality is, is that the, 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 the ultimate form of sophistication is to, is to be able to make yourself into a simple person. Right? So, so uh, but a, a sophisticate has, oh, he's got warehouses full of different weights and measures. You know? So, so Avraham Avinu had the most trusted currency. And what was the picture on the coin? So the picture on the coin was a young couple, and on the other side it was an old couple. So you say, okay, so very nice. So it's, it tells a story. There was a young couple that became an old couple. But I heard from Rabbi um, Moshe Shapiro Shlita, one of the great rabbis in the world today. And no, 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 it's the, it's the complete opposite. The story this coin tells is about an old couple that became a young couple. <laughs> right? Because they were very old and then they had kids. <laughs> and that this is the journey of Torah. The Torah is that which is constantly, right, reawakening you and, and transforming you and turning you from old to young. And now with this in mind, I want to just add a final PS, which is just a thought that I had, which is that you still, you see this dynamic in the name of Yitzchak as well. Because Yitzchak, Remember, we spell it Yud, Tzai, Ches, and Kuf. But if you rearrange the spelling of those letters, you get two words. Chai, which means life, and Ketz, which means the end. We talk about um, Ketz HaMashiach, meaning the end of days. So the end could be the end of one's life, or it could be the end of days, right? So you have life, which is more the beginning, and Kate's, which is the end. But I think that the story that Yitzchak is telling us is actually the opposite. I think that it's Kate's, which is there's the end, and Yitzchak is the meat of Gvora, which means, among other things, holding on and not letting go. So you know what? If you get to the end and you hold on and you don't let go, you know what comes? Chai, life. Right? And we know that that's the case actually in terms of Ketz HaMashiach as well. Because after Mashiach comes, we have Techiyas HaMesim, which is the meat of Yitzchak, right? Resurrection of the dead, which is the life that comes after the end. 
And then it goes on and on and up 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 and up. And it never ends. And you know, just just throw one last thing in from the Gomorrah, from Gomorrah Sanhedrin, just because I love it so much. They talk about, like even back in the day, you know, back in the day I'm talking about, you know, a couple thousand years ago, they were trying to explain resurrection of the dead, you know. And um, you should know it says in, in, in Gomorrah Vodazara, it says that it's known that all of the sages of the Gomorrah knew how to do resurrection of the dead. Um, so, so they say, how do you understand it? And they give many examples of why resurrection of the dead is not a big, such a big deal. And, but two come to mind just quickly. One is they say that, you know, when you plant, like, say, grass or a plant or something like that, you, you've got the seed, and you can think of the body now. The seed crumbles, and then new life comes out, and it springs forth. It pokes through the ground, and you've got brand new life. So if you think about that, trillions of times a day <laughs> you see resurrection of the dead just on that level. Right? But then they give another example, which I think is even more amazing, actually, which is that what is the bigger miracle or the bigger thing? To make something out of nothing or to make something out of something? To make something out of nothing is much bigger, right? So they say, when a person is born, what did God do? He made something out of nothing, right? So then after the person dies, they're already a something. You got the body right there. So making something out of something, it's like he already made something out of nothing. You think he can't make something out of something? <laughs> right? Like, what's the big deal? He already made you. So, so that's so dramatic. That's so hard to believe, right? Now today you have cloning. Where people take from fossils DNA and they, 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 they bring it back. So we see that this is something that's not really as, as fantastical as, as maybe we, our, our mind goes to, to begin with. It's actually, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty, pretty pedestrian almost. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it's, it's, it's certainly not the wild concept that, 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 that people might imagine it is. Um, and uh, just because it's one of my all-time, all-time favorites, just really, for sure, end on this, which is that the Kutzker Rebbe says, you know, it's a very, very big miracle to resurrect the dead. But it's an even bigger miracle to resurrect the living. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so Shem should bless us with a lot of strength, right? That if we hit, like Yitzchak, if we hit the kates, if we hit the end, we should have the gavura, the strength to hold on and experience the life that's right around the corner. Amen. Right? Like the Noam Elimelech said to the Chos of Lublin, you saw far, but I saw further. You saw the bad news that was coming, but I saw the good news after the bad news. Okay. <laughs>